The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Okay. Welcome to the Chris and Neil or the Neil and Chris show. Good morning or afternoon or evening, wherever you are. <laughs> Chris, I, I figured that we should actually call it the Chris and Neil show because it'll be better alphabetically in, in index. So I think um, even though we weren't having a battle over that, you win. It's the Chris and Neil show. Yeah, just by. Uh, yeah, well, I, my parents. <laughs> alphabetically, you win on both accounts, even if we do it by last names. So. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, you know, I was just following Brexit a little bit. You know, I, I don't always know how this stuff affects the venture capital world. Other than in London, apparently no deals are happening right now. Um, I, I'm curious about what the break from the uh, EU for the UK is really going to do to the economy in general. And while we're waiting for our guest today, who will be a quant trader. Uh, formerly from Goldman and um, Blackstone and a, a tech startup success of his own. I thought we might talk about that for a little bit, Chris. Yeah. Talk to me. Tell me. Share with me what this what what, what? what this is doing to the economy. What, what's what's uh? Well, it's hard to separate what's um, real from what's fear based. The the fear, of course, is that uh, Britain is the first domino to fall, and then the Scottish Nationalist Party will then resurrect the you know Scotland vote, and that the Dutch and others will follow suit in considering leaving the eurozone. Um, it's much harder for those that are in the common currency, I think, to separate, but it is creating fear, especially in the banking establishment. Um, as far as the reality of it. I don't think for Britain to leave the Eurozone, it's really that great a deal. Um, ultimately, uh, sorry, that great a deal for who? Taxes. That great a deal for who? Sorry. What's that? You said it's not that great a deal. Sorry. Not, yeah. I, I don't think it's a real uh, game changer, with the exception of do other countries follow suit? In other words, for Britain alone, they can forge the same or similar trade pacts, um, tariff agreements, et cetera, in trading with, with the Eurozone. But the fear is, you know, the Northern Eurozone countries have been funding the Southern countries, which are a basket case. And that, of course, includes small economies like Cyprus and Greece, but even larger economies like Italy. Um, and, and so uh, the break with Britain and a potential break with others means that there's no funding and um, ultimately the most extreme fear that the whole union disintegrates. And they've been trying to build this up since the end of World War II. So um, does all that work come undone? And certainly the establishment hates it because the change is very great and it'll change banking relationships. Um, so that's really the, the fear. You know, but as a layperson trying to learn about economics um, from you and little bits I read, 
um, and I guess from Ian, who's listening in as well with us, uh, as normal. Hey, Ian. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know why it matters. I mean, I, I've traveled to Europe plenty of times. I've traveled to the UK plenty of times. I don't really see any extra growth, any extra homelessness, any extra. And I'm not looking at the numbers. I'm just telling you about what I'm observing. Nothing seems different mm-hmm. to me as a result of pre and post Euro. And I've been going for all my life. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, there's the uh, economic dimension, which you're commenting on. And there's, of course, the political dimension. Um, I agree firmly with the belief that greater trade between nations is a way of communication and prevents conflict or, you know, stifles conflict. Nations which go to war or have um, animosity towards each other generally don't trade with each other and don't have that line of communication open, which is a very big line of communication. So the idea of following World War II to create a closer union with all of Europe was largely, of course, political. But they also looked economically at the United States and said, oh, you know, Alabama doesn't have any trade restrictions with Florida and New York doesn't with California. Let's create a sort of United States of Europe where uh, it's a big free trade zone. Um, And one of the greatest beneficiaries of that, of course, has been Germany, um, which is why there is some resentment built up within the Eurozone against Germany. The Germans have always had um, a very strong currency. And before the the common currency was created, which gave the Germans in, in one sense what they wanted, a cheaper currency in the form of the euro versus the old Deutschmark, which was perennially strong, um, it increased their trade among Eurozone members. So just as an example, before the common currency was created, Germany exported um, about 38% of their total exports to current Eurozone members. Now it's almost 73% of their total exports go to other Eurozone member countries. So they got a cheaper currency and it opened the floodgates in some sense for German manufactured goods uh, and, and German exports to the other Eurozone countries. And of course, like we've seen here in the U.S., it's um, reduced the manufacturing viability of some of those other countries. They couldn't compete with German manufacturing. So um, those jobs migrated to Germany. Germany has been one of the strongest, if not the strongest member of the zone, for sure, and the central actor. Um, and so people have all been arguing Germany's gotten what they've wanted, and now they have to share the wealth. And Germany's reluctant to do that. <laughs> so Germany will, of course, leave. So, well, in one sense, Germany is the eurozone, right? I mean, they've benefited the most. Um, generally, they call the the Germans, the French, and the Italians. I think um, just honorifically, um, and I would think the Dutch even more as the core eurozone constituents. So Germany, of course, represents that core. Um, And Germany doesn't want the Eurozone to dissolve because they're getting what they want, which is the stronger trade. Um, But it's coming at an expense. They've been subsidizing the weaker countries. Um, And even within Germany, there's a reluctance to continue that. You know, they don't want to keep funding and subsidizing Greece and Italy and the other countries. Uh, 
thus losing a lot of the wealth that they gained through the creation of the common currency in the Eurozone. So it's a, it's an impasse. And it's, again, it's mostly political. Um, but Germany has benefited the most. And, and I would say the Netherlands and some other countries, too, to a lesser extent. So would you, so it seems to me you think the market's more reacting in a place of fear currently and that there's not any necessarily Mm -hmm. uh, major conflict on the horizon with these countries, even though it would, you know, on the long term, keep it away. Do you think that there's going to be a bounce back in the market in short order after the Brexit uh, slowdown or slump? Yeah, well, the 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 leave vote seems to have come as a surprise. So certainly part of the market's reaction this morning and last night was um, shock <laughs> that they actually voted to leave. But if you look across the spectrum, obviously these more conservative politics, even um, demagoguery has become uh, heightened. I mean, from here at home in the U.S. with uh, Trump, ascending and that sort of rhetoric, uh, very divisiveness, discriminative and dualistic thinking is also very popular in Europe from um, um, Beppe Grillo's five-star movement in Italy to um, Marine Le Pen and the far right in France, the Scottish Nationalist Party, etc. All throughout, there's a, a growing voice of um, frustration um, that economies are kind of stalled. But still, I think the establishment, the banking system, the politicians all thought that this, um, that the Britons would still vote to stay or remain. Um, And so part of this is shock. So yeah, there will be some bounce back as the dust settles. But the other question I really don't know the answer to is how extended are the European banks? One of the things you always see is when everyone expects a certain outcome, it's what we call, of course, a crowded trade. And it looks like everyone was on one side of the boat going long um, European equities. The stock markets of Europe bounced as well as here at home. We saw a rally over the last four weeks or so that was, uh, I think, tied to the Brexit vote and the belief that Britain would vote to remain and that would strengthen European stock markets. Um, and that did not happen. So um, generally, the European banks have not repaired their balance sheets like the American banks did following Lehman. They're still highly leveraged. Deutsche Bank is, of course, the the poster child of this. I mean, leveraged over 30 to 1, very, very high derivatives um, exposure on their balance sheet. Um, and I just, it's, you never know what's happening inside of complex banks, uh, the very large banks, until it's over, like with Lehman. <laughs> you can see it uh, in the post-mortem when you do your forensic analysis. But right now, um, it certainly seems they're troubled. Um, and many many of the debt covenants uh, that they are probably exposed to were predicated on a, um, a British uh, participation in the Eurozone which is now a no-go, which is a dead letter. So so we'll see that. So I worry about the banking system there, and I don't know if there'll be further fallout, but I do think there's some um, bounce
in recovery, at least as people come to their senses about Britain leaving the Eurozone and what it means economically. It's uh, not that great, but the effect on the banking system is still a question mark. I'm not sure I can answer. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, Elon mm-hmm. Musk. Oh, is it even legal for Solar City to be bought by Tesla? I was waiting to ask you this it's, question. What do you think, Neil? Is it legal? Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, is, it, is, it, is it ethical? I don't know. Um, I don't necessarily think it's unethical. Wow. Does it seem like it's good for shareholders? Maybe a better question. I'm not convinced it does. Um, I was just, I've, I've been waiting for a few days to get your reaction on this. <laughs> it's a shock. It's a shock. He's um, the well, just for Elon Musk, who um, all of the shares trade with a premium, a Musk premium, right? He's uh, he's there's a great hagiography um, about him that he's sanctified. But this decision is a confidence destroying one for sure, and possibly reputational damage that. Um, he may be able to overcome. He's had uh, quite a long run, but it's it's amazing. And I still ask myself why, um, if he's so operationally strong, why he didn't engage the other car manufacturers early, just in in contracts to sell them batteries. I mean, Tesla has the best battery technology, it appears. That would have been a huge boost to Tesla to sell the batteries to Mercedes and to BMW and to other manufacturers, Chevrolet, who were uh, interested in in building electric cars. But um, now this, so it's very strange and certainly smacks of desperation. Well, I, I, I don't know how desperate he is other than maybe to not let Solar City fail. Um, I don't know if it's about value or anything like that. Just why not try and take some sort of asset and have some control now versus later? Here's the really well, strange the, the, question. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that the 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 loss in in um, in um, market cap for Tesla shares is much greater than even the purchase price of Solar City. So it appears that the investors have voted that this is value destroying. <laughs> so um, you see it in the, in the Tesla share price, at least as one vote of no confidence that those shares have fallen much farther than the purchase price and combined value of what Solar City would be worth. So Wait, anyway, so, but you were saying, Neil? No. So I, here's the strange question, right? In history, if Steve Jobs had done the same thing, and I know this is a weird comparison, and I know this isn't a mm-hmm. good justification. And I can just see Ian rolling his eyes right now as he's listening to us. If Steve Jobs had done the same thing, um, I, and I'm betting you don't have too much of either of these stocks, Apple or Tesla anyway. But if Steve Jobs had done the same thing, uh, would people really think it was so crazy? Or would they think, oh, good for him? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, in mm-hmm. some way, it seems to me people would have been more accepting of it. So I wonder if the one thing Tesla, that Elon hasn't learned from, from Steve yet is how to market himself more, more dollars. 
Yeah. Well, possibly. Do you think the <laughs> the communication of his vision? But uh, I, yeah. Well, I, no, I not no, really not the communication of his vision. Just the communication of his oracle-like power, um, and getting more of the, mm -hmm. the world to buy into. He must be seeing something all of us are not. Yeah. Yeah, it's just <laughs> such a such a strange combination, though, right? I think so. Yeah, I, yeah, I think he'll and, recover and, you know, just fine. By was the way. effectively, um, I mean, they were really running into uh, huge uh, liquidity problems. I mean, tremendous cash burn. Um, so it again, seems like a desperate attempt to keep Solar City afloat um, by using Tesla's um, currency and and image and reputation. Strange, strange for sure. Well, at least his cousin can brag he has an exit under his belt now, or almost an exit under his belt. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta look for silver lining in there. Uh -huh. so, so look, our guest today is a quant trader, and we've talked a little bit, I think, on our podcast here about quant traders and, you know, two-thirds of the market trading stock today is computers. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, you know, I'm just about to add him in. I'm curious in general about your, your sentiments in this very growing market and um, uh, what it is you're hoping to learn today. Well, for me, I'm... Um fascinated by the, the growth there. And, you know, as we had talked to Dr. Vivian Ming before about the growth in artificial intelligence, how that's being applied. Um, but it seems to me that a lot of the computer trading and in many, on many days, it's as much as 90% of the stock trading. We old carbon based <laughs> human traders are um, in some ways becoming a rare animal, hopefully never to be extinct. I think our judgment matters, but it's um, interesting to learn from him um, of what differentiates his strategy and approach. Because you can even see now, I mean, Neil, we can go out and buy off-the-shelf algorithms, but that doesn't seem to make sense to me. How does that distinguish you in your trading from anyone else? No, it doesn't. Um, but many, no, right, right. So many firms are in the business of selling their proprietary algorithms and um, for trading, but it seems to me that the more popular that is, then the more crowded and less distinguished your trading would be, um, a guarantee of mediocrity or worse. So I, <laughs> I just am kind of interested in what he sees in the development of quantitative trading, uh, the application of artificial intelligence, and then what makes his strategies unique. Cool. Let's, let me add him in. Hello. Hey, Kushal, how are you? This is Neil and Chris. Hey, Neil and Chris, how are you guys? Good, thank Good, you. Kushal. Nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you too. I'm so sorry for the uh, issues ahead of, earlier ahead, but now I'm all yours. We're, we're here now, that's all that matters. <laughs> Great. You know, I wonder if you might, if we might start a little bit with some of your background. I know you, 
you know, you, you've done a bunch of things at big places, including Goldman Sachs, and you, you know, you did your own tech startup, which is how we met. Um, just in general, you know, in, in under a couple minutes, if you might just share a little bit about your journey to here, so then we can jump off and ask you the really fun and tough questions. Okay, sure. So my background is predominantly in uh, quant finance and tech. Uh, I have an engineering degree. I have studied computational finance as in financial engineering and also computer science. I worked with Goldman Sachs um, on the fixed income trading desk um, in the asset management business, the GSAM, uh, Goldman Sachs Asset Management. And from there on, um, I, I was one of the you know founding members of the core team members of a fund called Athlon. Um, it's a credit long short fund. Um, I worked there for a few years and then worked with BlackRock um, as the uh, BlackRock India as one of the fund managers and co-head of the fixed income uh, for the India. And uh, after after that, I just thought, you know what, I always wanted to uh, I wanted to kind of follow my own dream of a tech startup, which I'd been harboring in my mind ever since my first failed tech startup in college. Um, and so I just wanted to do a one-up on it. So that's when I started Hubble with a friend of mine. And um, again, as you said, we met then. Um, Hubble was acquired by Airpush in, in 2013. I worked with Airpush for, for a couple of years. And in the meantime, I was hatching this idea of a quant uh, trade quant fund, which uh, which is kind of brewing in my head since Goldman and BlackRock days. Um, so at present, uh, I run a, a prop firm called Claveleno Capital. Uh, we're based in New York, and uh, uh, we trade uh, rates. We trade interest rate uh, interest rates in in both emerging and and developed markets. Hmm. And you're doing really well year to date, right? Can you share the number or an approximation of where you guys are at right now? Yeah, we have done fairly well. Part of it is probably from abstinence. I mean, we have kind of shied away from a lot of calls that we just don't understand where the market's going and for the right reasons. I mean, we trade a lot in Brazil. We trade in uh, sterling markets and and what's going on as you've almost, you know, as you've probably seen today, um, these kind of, these, that macro scenario was just something we've not been very comfortable with because it's nothing to do with fundamentals anymore. Um, and uh, it's pure an outcome of fear mongering and, and just, you know, more of an emotional roller coaster that, that the, the companies are on. So, um, so that's where we are. I mean, we have, we have, we've done a, a sort of a high double digit returns between uh, last year and, you know, for, for last calendar year until now. So very happy with the performance, but, you know, if, if had it not been for the, the, the volatility that we are seeing right now, we could have, we could have done better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, Kushal, this is certainly a, a crazy uh, day when we see interest rates around the globe um, collapsing. Um, and you're right, I've uh, looked at this environment and it's very, very difficult for any sort of fundamental analysis to work <laughs> in any yeah. consistent yeah. fashion. Yeah. Um, but your 
your feel for this as you're trading uh, globally, do you sense that these uh, negative interest rates would uh, possibly come home to roost here in the United States? Well, I'm not sure if we will see the the negative interest rates here. But then I also was I was I was completely sure that we would never see Brexit. Um, so, you know, but but at the same time, I think the the inflation and the growth growth down from from the from the flattish curve to to slightly downward sloping curve. In, in, in near future, but I'm not sure if we are going to see a negative interest rate. I think Fed is is a lot more proactive uh, at least it has been in the past, and it's pretty committed to um, whatever it takes. Like uh, you know, just that Yellen doesn't say as much as Draghi does, but I think uh, if it comes to it, she would be there with all the ammo out there that she has to her disposal to make sure that we don't get into a negative territory. Because I think. Not in, in my personal opinion, nothing good ever comes out of a prolonged negative interest rate uh, regime. Um, you're just, you know, delaying the inevitable into the future, and um, that that loose money supply is probably is a shot in the arm, but but definitely not addressing the, the core issues. So um, I'm not sure if if you would see negative interest rates, um, but then we are also staring into a very very um, delicate. Uh, Political climate and and uh, you know so suddenly after Brexit um, a lot of you know impossibilities are looking like live probabilities here on the home ground as well. So it's uh, it's kind of time will tell. Um, for now, I'm 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 still betting on the fact that you know of course right now the rate hike probabilities have have been pushed out way far in 2017, but. No, um, I'm, I'm, I don't think we are we are seeing any hikes in near term at all, but probably not any cuts yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, Kushal, everything you said, I agree with. I don't think that there's any benefit to other than that short-term energy potential that a negative interest rate regime can bring. And again, I think it delays the inevitable. So I guess what we have to debate, um, which we can't really, I mean, I'm, I'm four square against economic forecasting. I believe in economics, just economic forecasting. has <laughs> Very little faith in, but I um, think it becomes right a much, much more of a political debate. Um, many of the policies um, don't seem to have done anything but delay the inevitable adjustments that have to happen right. um, in the debt market. And uh, this would just be a further instance of that. So it seems like a political question. Will the central banks keep pushing this agenda or will they finally relent uh, and try something right. different? It's hard to know. Yeah. If, you, if yeah. you look at this whole Brexit thing, it has been more sort of fear-mongering and, and political thing in, in the first place. I mean, clearly, if you, if you follow the fundamentals, this, this should not have happened by, by any stretch of imagination. So... Um, you're right, Chris. I mean, what what prevents it to be extrapolated on the home ground and and kind of, you know, if if market starts to follow that cue, it could lead us into some really uncharted territories at this point in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Kushal, when when uh, with your quantitative analysis and your fund, um, 
are, do you, can you tell me a little bit about strategically without of course giving away your secret sauce, what sorts of things you look for? Is it, um, an arbitrage back to normalization or are there some strategies that you generally employ that you find, um, more beneficial and easier than, than others or how, how sure, exactly sure. do you Sure. So the, the bend of the fund is more towards relative value arbitrage opportunities. So we're looking constantly looking at various parts of the curve. I just wanted to mention that what we have is more of a blend of an algorithmic trading along with a human overlay. So we have our own homegrown algorithms, which are very good at finding arbitrage opportunities in the various parts of the curve. And where the human overlay comes in is to make sure that these are statistically significant outcomes and not just pure causalities, which algorithms sometimes get into the, uh, you know, get, get into the habit of identifying. So, um, so the idea is whenever we see a certain pocket of opportunities or a part of the curve, we kind of let our algorithms lose in that area, which will then go and kind of close the arbitrage opportunities in there. Now we take positions on one curve across across various curves based on the correlations that we think should fundamentally make sense, and also across mm-hmm. uh, you know different different type of um, instruments. So we, we look at interest rate futures, we look at outright bonds, we look at just pure GOVs, uh long term and short term uh, you know underlines. So that's kind of the overall you know uh, building blocks that we play with. And are, you know, we're always looking for macro dislocations um, and then going in and saying, okay, because of this, um, we see a lot of opportunities in particular parts of the curve. Now, how can we go in and capture these opportunities? Our typical trades are anywhere from, you know, a few hours to, to about two to three weeks. We don't think we understand the economy so well that we can take really long-term trades um, because there's not, uh, as we as we just established, there's a lot more than just pure fundamentals that's that's going on into into these these kind of um, you know trading outcomes. So uh, we are very risk averse. We believe in maximizing the sort of the risk-adjusted return, and so to to do that, we want to make sure that uh, we are looking at aspects that we truly have a firm grip on and that can be to a some level be you know subjectively uh, uh you know they, they are not just complete or you know uh, approximations but they can be really quantified into, into uh, some form of a closed form solution so that's mm-hmm. at a macro level our approach but if i can even go into the details of you know a strategy or two if, if you'd like me to but Right. This is at, at, right. at a high right. level. That's what we do. I mean, we, we use futures, and for example, in a, if you think that you know, the correlation between the the gilts and the and the bunds were uh, kind of veering away, then we would use futures and and these underlying positions to 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 put on synthetic trades that would either put like a take a flattening or a you know steepening position on the curve. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, thank you for that, Kishal. Do you employ any sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning to your process? Uh, we are in, so we are in the process of 
kind of our, our that algorithms are are still in a very nascent stage for us right now. Um, we I think uh, we are still in the process where we are letting these algos learn. I mean, we've we've we have definitely ventured into that area. I think we are. To, to do something really meaningful in that area, especially in fixed income, where um, where the you know we're looking at more of a macro fundamentals, I think we're not there yet completely with, in form of AI because A the you know the exchange traded volumes are very thin to be able to make uh, you know to be able to make sort of convincing uh, decisions A and and B. Um, what what you observe has a lot of um, what we observe in the market has tremendous amount of uh, subjectivity in it. So that is something that at least to, to calibrate our algorithms, um, I think, will take some time for us, and, and especially with the computing power that we have at hand. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so right now our algorithms are more of an execution algorithms that are they're not HSTs, they are still um, you know looking for the opportunities in more medium and short term of uh, short tenors of the curve but they are not using any AI um, kind of aspects to, to learn about it because mm-hmm. I mean we tried it and we realized that most of the conclusions that were coming out were either too naive and generic or um, they were you know, they were not sustainable, scalable in the longer term. Right, 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 right. In my prior startup, we did some, some you know, predictive algorithms based on, on machine learning techniques. So um, I kind of have some sense of idea in terms of what kind of data and what kind of accuracy, uh, underlying accuracy of data we need for us to be able to make some, um, you know, reliable and, and dependable trading decisions. And I just don't think from the data that we have at hand, uh, we are able to get there yet. Yeah. Well, and again, like we um, discussed earlier, this time seems such an aberration. I mean, $40 billion of corporate bonds trading at negative interest rates. Um, you yeah. know, $8 trillion or so of, of sovereign debt um, with negative interest rates. It's very, very strange. It's a strange world. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, you, you know, no, exactly. That's, that's what I'm saying, Chris. Like our, our, our regimes and the models are somewhat stretched beyond the boundary conditions. And, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm particularly not um, comfortable modeling these outcomes because you know, it's a, either you model them, you'll model them with tremendous amount of biases, which anyways would kind of predict what your outcome would be, or you would mm-hmm. get an outcome that is very naive and, and so observable that other manual trading strategies will pick you off if you try to run with those kind of algorithms. Right, right, right. Well, thanks, Kushal. Um Neil, do you have any questions? Yeah, you know, one of the things you were talking about early, Chris, was, you know, kind of the future of where, you know, algorithmic trading and high-frequency trading was going and just kind of how he saw it because yeah. he's a little bit of an insider. And mm-hmm. that was one of the most exciting things 
for me to learn about today? Yeah, it seems interesting. The, uh, Neil and I were discussing just the marketplace um, and, you know, so many um, firms now uh, creating and selling their algorithms. <laughs> right. I, I guess you buy an off-the-shelf um, trading algorithm um, and maybe subject it to a little bit of modification of your own um, personalizing it but but it, it's a it's a fascinating marketplace for me um, but it also seems that as a trader you want your process to be unique obviously you don't want to be in the crowded trades and I don't know how do you distinguish are you building your own or are you um, from scratch the um, algorithm trading models you use? Yeah, yeah. We have completely built everything on our own. We have shied away from uh, we have shied away from using anything off the shelf for the for the same reasons you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. And um, at, at the same time, the I, I think if you, if you look at the algorithmic world, has been more prevalent in the equity industry, right? Like, for example, in the equity side of the business, you will see some very sophisticated algorithms doing um, kind of kind of real uh, acrobats in, in the market. And I, my personal thinking is the reason why we think they work is because of, uh, um, because of an element of anonymity, especially lent by uh, dark pools and, and things as such, which again, mm-hmm. the, um, you know, especially in the fixed income world, we don't have access to such dark pools. And you know, th- those kind of things are anyways being frowned upon by regulators. And, um, you know, I, I don't, it has a very long uh, life in, in the longer run as, as things become more, as the computing power becomes more ubiquitous and, and available to everyone. So I think off-the-shelf algorithms are, are completely out of question. Um, Unless you yeah. have your yeah. own, um, I mean, typically what we see is like it's it's become so obvious that we can really say that oh yeah, this is here here comes an off-the-shelf algo that is just trying to pick up the just trying to ride the momentum wave. So I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's becomes so commoditized now that you can literally predict, uh, or when you see such certain bid and asks being put on the on the screen, you can say yeah, this is an algo kind of trying to. To, to do something here and and either stay stay away from it or you know um, kind of take a contraposition right there so 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 yeah I mean it's I think fixed income is is ripe disruption as far as equity has come around a full circle um, and now it's just become more of a uh, sort of predominantly where the algos are mostly, the profitable algos are mostly where it's like a transaction cost minimization type of algos rather than uh, actual alpha generation algos. Uh, this is what I've seen based on um, based on some of my colleagues and, and some of the some of the um, track records of what my, the places where I previously worked have. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, but as far well, as friction income goes... Too. Sorry, Chris, please go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it, it brings to mind that there's probably a game theory or a game theoretic aspect, too. If you look at what those algos are doing, you can trade against them, thinking, you know, that's kind of the, um, 
the those are the crowded trades. Those are what the, the sort of unwashed messes or um, the basic algorithms are, are the trades they're producing. Um, you can look at that and, and trade against it. In other words, seeing, as the great pastor said, what the devil is doing. And then <laughs> using that exactly. as um, a feedback loop to better your own trading. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Yeah, in equity, that's so true. And But in fixed income, I think there's still a lot of room because A, fixed income, you don't have those kind of, um, first of all, you don't have much of a, uh, retail participation in fixed income, so the majority of the flows are institutional. So they have right. they have an element of volume and a different texture to the kind of the trading patterns that we see. Secondly, um, in, in fixed income, you know, a lot of products are are still, um, you know, if if you will, macro dependent. And so, um, you know, what what you're modeling is is truly something that you cannot get from an off-the-shelf product. And and where where you can probably make the most alpha is by by creatively comparing and contrasting different parts of the curve or different correlations between across different assets and, and different asset classes. Um, and wherever those correlations break, you can just start, you know, you know, putting long short trades to close them. And I think a lot of banks and a lot of hedge funds have started investing into these areas a lot lately, what we see, uh, and for, for the right reasons, because there's a lot of potentials, uh, potential that is untapped um, mm-hmm. and, and out there to be arbitraged away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, uh, Kushal, for that. That's, uh, it's fascinating to see this market developing the way it is and and you're central to it so um, yeah, very interesting yep thank um, you yeah you know I, I i don't know that i have a lot more questions um actually and i'm actually getting the, the information from ian i don't know that he has a lot more questions chris all right Yes, well, I just, uh, looking back at the last, speaking of fixed income and the history of interest rates and um, thinking of the book by the great Sidney Homer and uh, looking at the last times we've been in an environment even similar to this, whether it's the 1870s or the 1930s, um, you know, in, in my very simple and uncomplex trading, we've just continually been um, betting on a flattening of the yield curve. Um, and thankfully we've been right. It's been a bumpier ride than, um, I could have imagined, but, um, I don't know, you know, we kind of talked about how, how very difficult this is to model. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been where we've gone. Um, yeah, I think, I think in the the past in the world that we're talking about, what is distinctively different this time around is just the amount of um, you know, liquidity that's been sloshing around in the market. And that not only leads to like secondary effects um, of subdued inflation and, and sort of the lower borrowing rates, but in, in overall, it just lends this complacence in you know, the feeling of complacence in the market, which is really, I mean, difficult to, to come out of it. I mean, look, look at Japan for, 
uh, you know, for that matter. I mean, if interest were low interest mm-hmm. rates were um, a panacea, then then Japan would have come out of recession a long time ago. And and right. you know, I mean, it, it, I don't think it's just purely economical. I mean, even at a at a behavioral um, from the behavioral aspect, I think low interest rate has has some, a very negative sentiment uh, sort of you know seeping down all the way to the to the, even the lender lender and consumers to that you know that 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 whole uh, that some inertia kind of sets into the broader economy which it becomes more and more difficult to to come out of that quicksand issue that I mean but I, I'm hoping that that Fed would not let it come come to that to that extent and act more assertively to, yeah. <laughs> to to not let us go there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I I hope and pray you're right, Kushal. I don't. Uh, I haven't seen that in evidence yet, but um, you're right. I think the low interest rates, what people don't really appreciate, is how they destroy um, the incentives in a capitalist system. Not just the incentives to save, but even to take uh, risks um, and to engage in capex and and other um, wealth creating endeavors. Um, yeah. So and it, uh, it just, it's it very just basically exactly, and it's just uh, you know uh, uh, at a broader sense, it's a confident confidence issue. Right? I mean, the lower interest rates would only be affected if. The amount that I save is is deployed in some sort of uh, spending, and and if it ends up into to reserves and and savings, then the whole point is is defeated right there, and that's what has happened in in last three years in the United States, um, and you know, the, and I think if we continue along this path, it it would continue to be there. People would tend to think that oh, this is my last dollar. Why would I? Spend it on a on a new car or a new home when I don't know how the economy is going to look, and I just put it in my savings account, and there starts a a, a tailspin. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. 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 And no one, no one would have thought that such low interest rates would be um, such a corrosive policy long term, but it certainly is in evidence, like you mentioned in Japan, and now here at home in the U.S. Okay. So thank you. Kushal for that, yeah. Kushal, thank you for your well, time Neil. today. Yeah, Kushal, yeah. we really appreciate. Thanks for bringing Kushal with us. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. It was great to uh, be on the uh, on the call with you guys. And, and Kushal will, of course, post All a right. link on on uh, to your website on on the show notes when we put it up. Okay, sure. Thank you. Thank you, Kushal. Great to have you on this very crazy day. Thanks again for your time. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. All the best. Speak soon. All right. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye bye. Hey, Chris. Hey, Neil. I think that you see what happens when you talk to a quant trader. It gets so technical so quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> very, very much so. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, without hesitation, right into the technicalities of, of trading and interest rates. It's um, a fascinating world for me, but I hope we didn't lose too many of our listeners. Maybe a, you know a what? challenging no, no, call. You know what? It's, it's okay if most of the listeners didn't end up finishing this one. Um, 
to me, if, if we're consistently learning and there's a percentage of our listeners who want to who want to learn with us on this subject, great. And not all of them should be interested in everything we're talking about. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any yeah. other topics that happened that we should be talking about before we finish this up? Um, well, I think for, for next time, um, my work before me is just kind of thinking about the implications, as I mentioned, that I'm unclear about for the for the European banking industry of the Brexit. You know, um, Kushal mentioned on the call that he said there's no way this should have happened. I don't know if I subscribe to that normative thinking. I mean, things happen, and whether they should happen or not happen, I don't know. It just <laughs> it is what it is. Um, but. I, um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in what the fallout means for, for the banking system because that's been promoted as the big fear. Um, and he, he mentioned the fear mongering. And so I wonder how much of it is substantive, how, how much substance or how much of it was just, um, please keep the status quo, don't vote to leave, remain in the Euro, uh, Eurozone, Britain, um, or else it'll just be terrible. And so I don't know how much of it was a nightmare to to scare the children or how much of it's real. So that's kind of where I want to go next time, just figuring out what are the real implications of a British exit, especially as relates to the, the banking system, since we're so finance-driven, um, especially in the weaker economies of the Eurozone and even here at home in the U.S. Well, I think we're all looking to that probably by uh, next Friday, so... I will coordinate mm-hmm. with you about when our next show will be. I, I think either I think we're at our tenth show now, Chris. Wow. Although Congratulations, th- Neil. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Congratulations, Chris. Uh-huh. Uh, I um I I think that uh um we'll focus on that for the next show then and um uh, maybe we'll start with this as show number one. We may actually send an email out to some of your clients just to ask what questions they're having so we can try and answer them through this format. Okay. Happy to do it. Yeah. Um, I, I can see nothing going wrong with that. Right. Right. Uh, great to get that feedback. So I'll share with you and the, and the listeners um, what questions come up. Great. And we can pick up the mantle from there. Great. Chris, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Everybody else, enjoy the rest of your weekend, and we will talk to you all soon. Yeah, thank you, Neil. Thank you, Ian. You all take care. I'll catch you soon.